Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to fishman.com for more info. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am Al Levy, and with me is one of my favorite people in the music industry. Even if I haven't talked to you in a few years, you're still one of my favorites, Mr. Doc Coyle. Welcome. Thank you for having me, brother. Yeah, dude. It's really fascinating watching you because you're one of those people who just keeps going. And just keeps doing more and more cool shit. Well, the thing is, I can relate to it because uh, I've transitioned in my life many times. And so I look at people who have the tenacity to do that. And I'm like, yeah, awesome. That's great. Like, don't let one time period in your life define you. Always make the future better than the past. I just think it's fucking cool to just see you keep going and keeping on developing yourself creatively and finding new things to do for yourself and new opportunities and new avenues for expression and actually going to the west coast and just doing so many things that so many people say they're going to do but don't actually do so well i think it's, it's the results of a being i think ambition and kind of selfishness kind of go hand in hand and i mean selfishness not necessarily in a, in a bad way but it's you know to a be healthy truthful. amount. Well, I just think there's like certain decisions. You know, I've made a decision not to pursue a family life, for example, because for me to do what I would want to do, it wouldn't be fair to to burden other people and not be able to give that something like that uh, its its type of attention. You know, so there's definitely an element of of being kind of all right, I have all these things I want to do. And even now, like I'm doing a bunch of different things and all I'm thinking about is, damn, I can't work on this other thing I want to, or this, I have this other idea. Like, it's almost like I have too many ideas and not enough time to execute all of them. And it's making me kind of reexamine myself. Like, damn, I need to, you need to figure out either how to make the time you do have more efficient or, you know, I also have those points as well where, I need to probably start saying no to some things or, <laughs> or, or bowing out of certain projects because it just, it gets time consuming. And it's, um, you know, like right now I'm actually, I can't say it publicly that, but I'm filling in for a, a pretty well-known metal band on a, on a European tour. So I'm like learning that material. And then I have my own band, you know, that I'm, you know, we're doing a video or planning a tour. Vegas nerve. Yeah. Vegas nerve. And then, I joined another band where it's not, I didn't, it's not really my band. Like I'm kind of joining someone else's band and, but then it's like, they want to rehearse. So it's like, but, I'm, but I have all that. So I'm doing work for three bands. I'm working on my podcast. I have a job at home that I, that I do. I like bartend on the weekends, you know, I'm doing guest guitar solos for people, you know, kind of like you know, hired gun type stuff. I'll do stuff like that. There's always... Can you just write a track for Body Count? Well, yeah. I mean, I wrote the track, you know, maybe six months ago, but the song, the album is just coming out now. Yep. 
Um, yeah, I wrote a track for that. I've written three songs for Jamie Josta's solo band. Uh, one of those is on his new EP that just actually came out the same day, came out yesterday. Uh, a song called Chasing Demons, Howard Jones from Killswitch is on it. But there's always stuff like that where I just, you know, it's just, I'm kind of slow when it comes to, I think, stuff like that. Like, if I'm going to write a song, I, I need a whole day. You know, I can't really do anything else. I have to, like, just focus on that. And um, and then I, like, you know, you know, a lot of people have, you know, become aware of me through my writing, you know, um, about music and, and stuff. And I have 50 articles I want to write, and I don't have time to do that. So it's like, you know, a lot of times when you look at your time and your life as kind of real estate, there's only so much you can do, you know, un, un, unfortunately. And that doesn't even come into the effect with your personal life and trying to make time for my girlfriend and Personal life, family. huh? Yeah, well. <laughs> I was about to say, what I, I, I remember having a personal life once upon a time. Really? <laughs> I'm trying to imagine you with a personal life. <laughs> that, that's what I, I think I had one. It's come and gone. Definitely don't really have one right now. But, you know, it's interesting what you're talking about. I talk about this with uh, with my friend Finn, who works with us, how the number one struggle or maybe failure point for most successful entrepreneurs is that they try to do too many things and end up spreading themselves thin. So I find myself struggling with that a lot because there's always like, God, I want to do this. I want to do that. I could easily do this and that and this and that. But in reality, I know that I should be focusing on my number one, which is making me the majority of my money and has the most potential. But the, the demon that wants me to keep on trying new companies and new ideas doesn't ever shut the fuck up. But I have found that I do better when I start saying no to things and focus, like that energy that I could have been focusing on five projects, I try to put into one or two. And then I find that those one or two these days get bigger than the sum of all five put together would have been. If that makes sense, yeah. No, it's, it, there's definitely that that point. I think we all we, we all reach. Like me, I, I I don't think you know. Obviously, I'm I'm friends with um, Finn as well, and uh, props to him. Shout out. I you know he, he brought awesome. me on. Yes, yes, and he's he's definitely an an inspirational guy in a lot of ways. For a lot of people who don't know him, he um he had the site. What was it? Uh, Stuff You Will Hate? Yep, Stuff You Will Hate. He was Sergeant D on Stuff You Will Hate. Yeah, and then he now he has a new website called Punk Rock NBA where mm-hmm. he filters a lot of just um, business-minded and, and inspirational type of articles, but from the perspective of the independent music world, you know, that ethos that we all came from. And, it's, uh, and then there's also a really great Facebook private Facebook forum with uh, kind of like-minded people. And I think that's really incredible, but he's brought me, he also, he, he works at creative live and at night yeah. I, I blogged for them and actually did some on air, on air stuff, uh, playing, doing some guitar demos and stuff. So um, yeah, he's, he's amazing. Yeah. The, uh, our listeners know him through creative live because I've done like eight of them. And also cause he works with uh, nail the mix URM Academy on our marketing so he's been on the podcast actually a few times too so some of our 
listeners are aware of him and if you're not you should be and definitely punk rock mba is actually a great resource i think for people who aren't just looking to be in the business world like for instance the whole like the article he put out about diy facebook ads is phenomenal for anybody that wants to learn how to get better reach on facebook for instance not just business people like it's whenever i see musicians complaining about facebook i show i link that article yeah i i, I read it i you know to try and get some insight because it's still kind of a, a bit of a mystery box for me um especially with with my newer band uh, vegas nerve because we're not in the situ- in the position to really do a lot of touring right now because we're kind of a long distance band and we all do a bunch of different things so in some respects, like I was, I was even thinking about it. I was like, all right, so let's say you're a brand new band and more like when you're brand new and you go on tour, you're going to lose money, right? Yes. And the goal is to either, you know, when you know, Hey, listen, we're going out where maybe we're making 50 bucks a night or whatever, where it's, it's small. So the idea is to either not lose money, break even, or lose as little money as possible. Unless, and I know some of these bands will go out there and they'll they'll buy onto a tour, or they'll just do a crappy tour where they have to rent a van or do something. And they'll, you know, five per people in a band will have to spend a thousand dollars each, maybe, to do the tour. And I was like, what if you took that five thousand dollars and just spent it on Facebook ads? Would you make more fans doing that than having done the tour? And the tour, because think about it, even if it's like a good, like say a good opening slot on a tour and you pay, played in front of three to 400 people a night, which would be a really good tour for a young band. So think about that. So you three, you know, 400 people times 30 days, you know, was was my, my math was at uh, 12,000 people. But you're that. being generous because that's assuming that the three or 400 people are there at the beginning of the show. Exactly. I'm, I am being generous, but I'm just giving you, but just making some round numbers, but using that same money, wouldn't it be, ideally, couldn't you make more fans? Because think about $5,000. Possibly. No, I agree. I I think that if you're, I guess, your path to fandom, or your, I guess, I hate to say sales funnel, but if you're... Marketing? I to, yeah, Marketing I hate, to, I hate to say sales funnel for a band because it just sounds so bad. But like if, you're, if your funnel is set up to where peop, you can capture people's information easily, like if they click on that Facebook ad and say it's a music video or 30 seconds of a music video and then they go to your page or to YouTube or whatever and you have... Uh, if your branding is straight and all that stuff, like it's easy to... to to find your band after that and you have all the appropriate stuff in place to capture people and you know how to pixel them and retarget them and all that stuff then i think that you can as long as your music doesn't suck and you target the right people you have a much greater chance of making some fans by putting that money into Facebook. Yeah, I just I just think it's difficult to if you were to tell that to a band who let's say they just had that as a resource. They're like, "Hey, we have $5,000 to promote our band or that you could take that money and, you know, hire a publicist or, you know, and you could you could fund or do a radio campaign, right? Like if you have just you have allocated resources 
how do we use this money? I think it's a, just a tough sell to tell someone, hey, put this into these ads because it it's not sexy, right? Like you go on, you spend $5,000 to go on tour, you can kind of, it's very real and tangible, right? You go out and you, you, you know, you load in and you play the show and you connect and you see the people. It's, it's very easy to kind of make that connection of where your money's going, but it's, it's a probably a bit scarier. So, and I'm saying this as someone who has not put $5,000 into Facebook ads, but it's just, like I said, it's just a thought experiment I've been but having But you lately. also know you have well over a decade of touring experience at all levels from like filling in for Lamb of God to being an opener band to being in your own headlining band to being in a direct support band like you've kind of done it all bus or van mm-hmm. you know you know the deal and you know that just because you're on a good tour doesn't mean that you're going to get many fans out of it like I'm sure you've experienced that I know I've experienced it to where you think this tour this is this is going to be it but then you're playing five minutes after doors and only 25 people see you a night and it's like it sounded so cool when we booked it like it looks so great on paper but in reality it's not helping the band that much well i have to say with with respect to god forbid specifically that was really how we made fans we didn't really get serious fans until we hit the road and it was very tangible for us as you know for where we would do a certain tour or do a show and you was you know and back then it was you know the early 2000s when uh, record sales were still something that that meant something you could literally see the sound scans jump up and you can see i'll give an example so when we did ozfest in 2004 God forbid had one of the best. We were the one of the best selling bands on the tour. So if you looked week to week to week, I think Lacuna Coil was the biggest selling band. Obviously, Slipknot was the biggest selling band. To be truthful, but as far as like the bands, the developing as far bands, as, every, as far as everybody else goes, yeah. Um, you know, On Earth, Devil Drive. We were actually one of the top selling bands, and it legitimately had to do what was happening on the day and going out and, and, and doing the work. It was the it was the one thing, because I think, you know, and I think it's just different for different bands, but for us, you know, when we were really firing on all cylinders, you know, and, and we were lucky. We did get good tours with the right bands. You know, I, I, I can't really think of too many times we went out with someone and been like, eh, this is just not, it's not working for us, so we're sticking out like a sore thumb. Like, we... We're a hybrid band, so we tended, if, if we were playing with more hardcore scene bands or we were doing with, you know, touring with a death metal band, we were always able to kind of carve our own niche, you know. And, and my whole thing is, if you're good, it shouldn't matter who you're playing with. You you, you got to bring it and go out, you know. And it's and the, and, the, and the really empowering thing about the live show is it really is in your hands. It's like it's the one thing you can control is how well you perform how seriously you take it you know going to the merch booth meeting people connecting because you do a show and even you know there's a 200 people there and you only get five fans but those are five fans for life you've done your job that day as far as i'm concerned so it's all about it's all how you look at it i think and it's all you know i don't know with that with respect to that that was definitely a bonus for us but is five but say is five fans a night for thirty nights, worth five thousand dollars. No, but we were we never paid to go on tour. Not, yeah, like we, we had times when we were breaking even or making not very much money. But we were we didn't go out and 
you know, we never did that like more locally type band situation. We didn't really start touring until we had a record deal, until we had some tour support. Uh, you know, we had a manager, an agent. So we you were did kind it right. of, yeah, we kind of started doing things when there was an infrastructure and apparatus that allowed us to do it in somewhat of a responsible way. The thing we did, we just all just moved back home with our parents and just knew we're not going to make money for like a year and a half. And we're just going to be, and the idea was just go out and not lose money. You know, but you'd have situations back then. We like, we had a van and the van would break down and all of a sudden you missed two weeks on the tour and that kind of blew up your budget or, you know, there's be all these kind of things, but then you come home and even though you didn't personally lose money, you just didn't have any money. So you, <laughs> you, you're trying to get <laughs> crappy jobs or figure it out. And you would, and it was a real kind of psychological thing of being out there. And when you're on, the, especially when we started getting bigger tours, when we went out with like Nevermore and Opeth and Cradle of Filth and, you know, we, we started to feel like we were rock stars. Like, yeah, you know, cause we started, you know, the band started doing well and we come home and then, you know, you have, Eight dollars in your pocket, and you gotta go wa- work at Walmart. You're like, I'm 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 not a rock star, <laughs> and you're living with a parent. Yeah, well, I, well, my my grandparents at the, at, at the time, I never really cared about that, but it was, I felt lucky. To be truthful, I felt lucky. I had a I had a place to stay. So I mean, a lot of people don't have family to stay with. So I felt great about it until I was about thirty, and then then I started to feel like a loser. Yeah, but by that point, I, things were kind of developing their own natural equilibrium uh, around our band. And, you know, I things were starting to become more clear at that at that point anyway. But um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a tough battle, I think, for how bands want to, you know, figure out what you want to do. And and and, you know, I think the kind of cool thing now is it's a whole new game. And there are people think there are rules, but there are no rules. You have to get creative about how you want to launch your project, you know, because the thing is, like I said, you think like an entrepreneur and in many ways being an entrepreneur, you're like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. This business model, it doesn't, you're trying to make money. Starting a band is probably one of the dumbest things you can do. Though I have seen it work out for lots of people. So within that, within the realm of, yes, it's one of the stupidest things you can do. There are certain conditions upon which it's not one of the stupidest things you can do. So, I mean, I definitely feel like if you if you go about it the right way and you're at the right time in history for that kind of music you're making and uh, are actually really good, then maybe it's not that dumb of a move, but uh, in general, it's kind of dumb. <laughs> it's, it's tough. <laughs> well, it's just a, a business model standpoint. So if you look at record sales, a record contract is is constructed in a way that puts the, you know, that mitigates the risk for the label as much as possible, right? So mm-hmm. that's why, so most people, a lot, I don't know how much your listeners know about this, but g- generally a normal a band's royalty rate will be somewhere between 12 and 15% to start for a whole record. So just, you know, if the record is $10, you're making a buck 50. But obviously you don't see any of that money until you recoup. But it's really difficult to recoup your costs out of only 15%, which is why many bands end up unrecouped. So you have that thing. That recouping out of that percentage was one of the things that so many people don't understand. Yeah. That you're not recouping out of the 100%. Yeah, and there's and and the, and the thing is so you have that that 
revenue stream. Then when you go to the touring revenue stream, you have the idea of just you have to split everything however many ways with the people that are in your band. That's And that's after your manager gets paid. That's after your agent gets paid. You have crew, the cost for your vehicle, gas. You have all this, the, just the overhead is is such to the point where a band probably has to make around $1,500 in guarantees and maybe somewhere around $1,000 a night in merchandise to you get to the point where you could do that band where you can make a, um, a middle-class income. And that's being very tight, like being very frugal and not going overboard with tour buses and crazy stuff. So it's... and. The, and and you know this as much as I do. Getting to the point where you're making fifteen hundred dollars a night in guarantees and selling a thousand dollars a night in merchandise, that's a pretty big band. Yeah, that's not easy. But the thing is, if you can get over that, right? If you can get over that threshold of those kind of minimum numbers of having making a living, then you can do really well. Then all of a sudden, you are making six figures and plus, like the you know the I think the bands you were referring to that can make money like that upper crust, the like the kind of one percent of one percent of musical acts do great. They do really well. They make a lot of money because once you can kind of break out into that that uh, notoriety, it can be very very profitable. But just getting there is, you know, it's 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 very difficult. And it's not guaranteed. So just I'm just saying strictly as a business model. If I was a young person and I've written about this, would I be a rapper or a DJ or a comedian where you're just it's just you. You can just go out by yourself and you have a backing track or if you're a DJ, you just go out and do your thing. It's just from a business model standpoint, you can go out there in your Toyota Camry and do a tour, you know, <laughs> I mean, not for nothing. It's just it's it's I've thought about that, too. It's so uh, it's so much more enticing to think about it that way, because I mean, a thousand bucks a night for one person minus expenses is a whole different world than split by five people after expenses. Whole different world. I was reading an article about Jason Newstead, and he he showed up a couple years ago with his own solo project called Newstead, and he was pumping it up. He was all over social media. They were doing tours. He had Mike Mushuk from Stained playing second guitar. In the I band, remember that. Right. And it was actually kind of, it had some heat. Like, it was, like, really cool. It was like, oh, Jason Newstead's out here. And he kind of just disappeared. And he, they had an interview lately, and he said the reason why he stopped doing it is that it was so expensive that he was spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to go all, all over the world. Now, I'm not his account manager or anything like that, so I don't know how he was spending money or why, you know, why it was that, but... Think about it. A guy like that who probably has millions of dollars in the bank, even he, it was the, the business model of running a band was too cost prohibitive. And I think about other people, people like Joey Jordison, who had to launch a new band and he's the guy, he's the money guy. So him doing his band was probably costing him money. I look at um, Jada Pinkett Smith. Who she had that band uh, Wicked Wisdom, I remember and, them, and they were doing stuff. And I imagine, and they had two buses, and she was paying everybody just for her to be on tour because you have someone with money in the band, and they're incurring all the all the costs. 
probably she's spending hundreds of thousands of dollars every month they're out. And that's also time that she could be making a movie, making a million dollars, being on a television show, making. So it's not only that you're spending money, but you're also not doing other things that you could be making money. I completely agree that it's kind of funny to think about it like that. I mean, I think that some in the particular case of Jason Newstead, it's entirely possible that they thought that it was just going to be the early 90s all over again for him and just put it out and it'll do great because it's Jason Newstead and it was a reality call because the reason yeah. I say that is because and I don't know this for a fact I could be totally wrong but the reason I say that is because I've been involved in certain productions where say a band was reuniting after a long time and they were successful in their heyday and so by successful I mean went gold for instance yeah so like actually moved some units back in the day where it mattered and getting back together they're thinking that they're going to at least be in the billboard top 10 and they're making fun of bands that sell 5,000 copies the first week Mm -hmm. Um, and you know (laughs) talking shit and guess how many copies they sold the first week there's 5,600 and which is good that's a good yes that is good for now but like I'm just saying that like these guys who come from a different era they might they it's entirely possible that they're approaching it that they were approaching touring and everything as though it was still 1995 or something yeah but, however, that doesn't change the point that it's extremely difficult, um, and especially if you're not being creative and you're not going about this, I guess, like a guerrilla warrior. I, I think that it's a lot more like guerrilla warfare now. But, for, for instance, I have seen people now who I know personally that develop their career for years online and never tour, and they build it up to a point that when they finally do tour after a few years, every show is sold out and they make bank. Angel Vivaldi, that's what he did. There you go. I mean, and I'm sure you can think of a few others, too. Periphery is a, a band that really, and I don't know if it was totally on purpose. I think it is also just reflective of the online communities that they spent time in. But it wasn't that they came, by the time they came out, they were selling out shows, but they did have fans. Out even before they were signed. Yes, through. the internet already loved them. Yeah, and they were able to to parlay that buzz into record deals and into you know doing like we toured with them 2010. Just did this tour with Kitty. I, I can't I can't remember if they were signed by that point. I think it might have been before they were signed. But you would see in every city, you know, they weren't big, but in every city there'd be that handful of people that already was familiar with the band already liked the band and it's yeah it it i've actually been i've had this article in my head and i've been doing research on it to basically rewrite the strategy of how bands start and it and it really uh, was inspired by vegas nerve when we were shopping our ep around and you know a lot of the the lines from the labels were like all right so are you guys planning on touring? Are you, this would be a, a very similar question is, well, are you a band or are you a project? And the insinuation there was that 
it was just kind of a recording, but we weren't a real band. Like we weren't, it was just like something we made and it's a couple guys, but you know, you know, truth, it is a band. Like we, we recorded the album live in a room and the chemistry and all that stuff is really important, but I understand what they mean by that. Is That's a they, fair question. Totally a fair question. In 2015, 16, 17, whenever it was that you were talking to them, that's a totally fair question. Yeah, so totally fair question. And it, and it really actually made me look to the band and kind of be like, all right, we have to ask ourselves how seriously we're taking this because I wouldn't want to sign a record deal and they had certain expectations that we weren't able to follow through with, you know? Because I think it's, I'm very much into the, the ethics of business and you know this community the the heavy music community is very small everyone knows everyone and if you're if you do bad business it gets around and people want to work with people that they feel um care about uh fulfilling their obligations it's really really important to me so so the what i was thinking about was all right so labels and managers and agents, they want to sign a band and they want that band then go out and tour constantly for that first record, right? But the, but the band is new. So they, out the gate, they're not going to be making very much money or they're going to be spending. It's going to be very difficult. So that group of individuals has to make a decision to essentially risk their well-being for X amount of time for hopefully some payoff down the road, right? And my thoughts about this, and as someone who's been in that position, but also has studied stuff, I've noticed a lot of bands get defeated mentally and emotionally during that time, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, and I think they kill the golden goose early because they want results early. And it made me think about all the European bands, bands like Opeth, bands like Dimu Borgir, that didn't we never, they didn't even show up in America for years later to like their fifth album, right? You yeah, know, they, they, or Gojira, perfect example. Yeah, so what they were doing was they were, they were dealing with their circle of control, right? So you look at a band like Opeth who did one tour with Cradle of Filth in like the 90s and didn't really start touring until their like fifth album. And the thing I was thinking about that was what did they do in that time? Of those four albums, they made fans by just being a great band, and they developed they developed themselves artistically. Which, even if you look at rock and roll history, like classic rock bands in the older days when record contracts were far more ridiculous, they also gave you far more chances. Like it wasn't uncommon for a huge star to have four albums out before they hit, yeah, and four, four flops. Yeah, yeah Pink look, Floyd's a great Pink example. Floyd, Aerosmith really, you know, grinded it out. And so this is kind of, to me, I guess the concept is the new artist development, you know, is that we need to, as an industry, we need to, like, even though I understood where those labels were coming from, they weren't understanding like that. We kind of have to start looking at this like sports, right? So if I'm, I'm an NBA fan, so I'll use NBA as an example. If I'm looking at the, the player with the most talent in the draft to make my team better, you know, and I'm saying, well, if he's not going to be good, if he's not going to be an all-star the first year, I'm not going to draft him. But if I, if I take him and then I develop him by the third or fourth year, he's going to be a great player. What makes more sense 
to get the guy who's going to be good on day one or the one who's going to be great if I just work with him for three or four years. We want to think, be thinking long term. So I think even though I think those labels are right, I also think they're not they're looking too much in the short term and need to be aligning themselves with the the best talent. Right. The kind of talent, but also obviously you need, you need sane people, right. you need responsible people. <laughs> That's important. But it just got me, but also made me think about bands like Lamb of God, bands like Killswitch Engage. Like I, you know, this is, you know, from being friends with them, I don't think Killswitch would have became a full-time band unless they signed with Roadrunner and they could get tour support and they could get big opportunities. They weren't like desperate to be rock stars. They were, they all like, you know, everyone had other careers. I look at the Lamb of God guys. They were, you know, they were in their thirties by the time things actually started happening for them. And they were really smart. They weren't like, all right, guys, we're going to quit our jobs and go get in the van. That band did one van tour (laughs) and they, and they did only buses after that because they would, you know, share, but they were, you know, they valued themselves and they said, no, I'm not going to go chase something. We're gonna let it come to us, and they were patient. And even though the, you know those two bands in particular had huge success on their their kind of first label releases, and they did well, but but it's it's this thing of not getting too ahead of ourselves. And I think it's um it's a as an industry, unless we like I said, just killing the golden goose because we want the eggs now is like we have to develop more patience. I think as an industry, you know, one of the best ideas I ever heard came from Blasco, uh, one of our conversations where he said that he thinks that the industry, the label should undergo a mandatory signing freeze of one year. Hmm. Because, I mean, it'll never happen. But just think about if somehow that happened, where for one year, you can't sign anything. So for that one year, you can't get distracted with shiny young bands that suck and aren't going to do anything. And you're going to have to really work your roster to uh, try to get the most out of it. You will then realize who is worth keeping around and developing, who's not worth keeping around and developing. It'll give you really interesting perspective for the future. It's one of those things that, like I said, would, would never happen. But yeah, it would probably be be healthy, you know, and, and the thing is, I think in the world we come from, the heavy metal world, there's not that many labels that really have resources and, you know, there, there's a handful and not for nothing, those labels are the success stories. They have they are the metal blades and the central medias in nuclear blast. They've survived. And I think they, they really do know what they're doing, but they're also, I think, there's an element of being conservative because there it's, you know, the losses when you're going out and investing in a band can be, you know, it's, it's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and I know to, on the outside looking in, that looks like, Oh, well, they're a big label. They can afford it. You know, that's, those are people's jobs and salaries. <laughs> like if, if they lose that money, then that means they got to fire someone. Um, so it's, it's, it's tough, man. I, I don't envy uh, the A&R people of, of today because I think, you know, the, the risk is definitely uh, prohibitively higher, you know. Well, than, it's than a ca- there's this catch-22 because you want to find the talent, right, to develop it and invest that into it. But then again, it's so tough to move records that if you don't get results right away, you're firing people. So it's... 
that's why the signing freeze is a great idea, because you won't be spending those resources on dumb bands. And I'm saying this because of my years producing bands and dealing with these labels. They, I thought they were signing too many shitty bands. And that was one of the problem. It was like too many bands were getting like five to ten thousand dollar budgets, which aren't that. That's not that great for a record. Yeah. But you can make a record with that. But they were just throwing that money at bands that should have still been local bands. Well, and yeah. I th- think that that right there didn't hurt. Didn't help the situation at all to flood the metal market with all these local bands, basically. Well, you know Steve Joe, who used to be at Central Media, and I was at Prosthetic. That dude's an angel, yes. Yeah. So Steve, like, so God forbid our deal with um, Central Media ended in 2010. So it's kind of the end of uh, our te- you know tenure, and he was our, our guy over there. And he was explaining to me around that time, you know, 2009, 2010, that instead of signing one band, you know, for, you know, two, let's say you gave two bands, two $50,000 deals. Instead of doing that, they would just give 10 bands, you know, $10,000 deals because the math just worked out that out of that 10, two of them will hit, you know, just kind of by virtue of the law of averages. And it just, you know, it, it be so basically what you what you're having at these labels, and, and I think the the strategy makes sense from the dollars and cents is we sign dependable veteran X that we know will you know it's a simple equation of we put X in and you know based on their previous sales this is the result we're gonna get right so we're gonna you know if we're nuclear blast we're gonna sign Machine Head we're gonna sign Fear Factory because we know that those fans are out there. And then when it comes to new bands, unless that band already has like, you know, it's killing it in social media or it's, you know, they've seen their poll star numbers and they know they like we know there's this fan base there. We just have to plug in. If it's literally a baby band that doesn't really hasn't made an impact, it just doesn't behoove them to take the risks. Like there's a new band really great. I'm not going to name who they are who signed with a bigger metal label and they kind of got hyped up really talented man like amazing and they kind of got a really good deal you know in the tens of thousands and the band kind of didn't do much they like you know because the one guy in the band has a business he's making money and it's and so that label probably got screwed because they gave them a more traditional deal and then the band wasn't it didn't really do the work you know and listen they, they still might do it eventually but it made me very aware of that these you know you have to be you know it's it's just like bands are not dependable <laughs> you give them this deal right you you know, spend tens of thousands of dollars to make a record do all stuff then they go on tour and they break up and then you're out of your money i completely see that and i remember when i got my first manager one of the first things he said to me was you know, in the industry, all the managers and labels have a bad reputation for being the bad guys, but some of these bands are some of the worst guys I've ever met as far as um, being willing to screw people over or not even realizing that they're screwing people over for money. So I totally get it from the money perspective, you know, because also I've done spec deals with bands or I've invested in bands' records back in the day just to have them fuck off or break up or whatever and so this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about well is that five thousand dollars 
good to put into Facebook ads or to buy on a tour. I think that the more you can do to uh, establish your success independent of the industry, the better your chances are of making it in the industry. Because of all those risk factors, it will be a lot easier for people to invest in your project if your project is already a machine, basically. Yeah, and it's 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 one of those things. It's it's like a a tough love scenario, where if you do it, it's like in in many ways. I think this hurt, God forbid, was even though we were building an audience in the Northeast and had you know somewhat of a name. Really, things didn't happen for us until we got a label and a manager, and you fast forward ten years later when all of a sudden we you know we we don't have a record deal and we don't have a manager you realize that you become dependent on a lot of these tools and the, and we weren't as self-sufficient as we could have been. And in, in a lot of ways, when you have the manager to kind of be, to do all the work, then you have to do it yourself and you don't know how to do it, you're probably gonna make a lot of mistakes. And the self-sufficient bands and the people that can wear all the hats and know how to put out their own records and promote their own records and book their own tours, you know, they're always going to survive, you know? So it's, you know, it's, it's very much like that, that parent that spoiled their kid. And when the parent's not around, the kid is helpless, you know? So I'm, it's amazing how much I've learned, be, you know, essentially starting from scratch with a new band and doing everything independently. You know, we did a Kickstarter to help, uh, finish the record and, you know, booking our own shows and kind of going back to the basics because it is, even though I, I did it years and years ago, it's a whole new world. The way you do these things, even though there's some things that are similar, there's a whole lot that is brand new. You know, it's like, I didn't, I didn't know how, I never put out a record like on my own. Like I never went, you know, we, you know, going to CD baby and figuring, you know, we're like doing the paperwork and trying to figure out all the stuff. It's, um, even though I've been in the industry for a while, it's amazing because it keeps changing how much you don't know. Absolutely. Well, it's funny that you say that about managers and labels kind of spoiling bands, by the way, because in some of my production experience, I find that some of the bands that have had more of that uh, have the hardest time with little things like how to book a plane ticket, <laughs> you know, like uh, how to how to get to the airport on time. <laughs> I remember 2001, first time we went to the UK, and I remember we went with our manager, the Rev, who was at the syndicate, and he he went with us. And I remember just I had, I hadn't been to an airport since I was like 10 years old. And it, I was like free. I was like scared of the airport, <laughs> and it's not knowing where anything was and where where I was supposed to be. And it was, yeah, it's um, it's kind of amazing. But it's, you know, but I'm learning that now. Like, you know, when we didn't, when Vegas Nerve, we didn't get a label to pick up the record. In a way, it kind of emboldens you to say, all right, you know, we're gonna we're we're gonna do things our own. We're gonna make our own music videos. We're gonna book our own shows. We're gonna do our own promotions and having and the thing is I think you can you can only do that stuff if you have that personal self-confidence to go out and say hey I think we are good and it's not that whole like oh I'm gonna you know spite the label They're, they'll know they'll learn they'll be they'll be begging me to sign to their label in the year it's like I don't care about any of that stuff 
I just really think you're just doing it for the right reasons, you know, like do it because you want to do it, not because you think there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Well, hopefully there is one, but I mean, but I really don't care. I don't like, I just want to do cool things with people I like. So do you, are you enjoying doing stuff yourself? Yeah, I, I really like it for me. It's just, like I said, you know, kind of going back to the beginning of the podcast, I just do so many things. I have to like, like I said, I have to clear out that real estate where I basically will have like points where it's like, all right, I'm pretty much just doing Vegas nerve stuff right now. And that's my top. It's kind of just moving things to the priority list. Like currently I have to book some shows on the East coast and I have to record some acoustic tracks before I, cause I'm, I'm working Coachella and then I go on tour with that band. So, so I have like these things where I'm, all right, I have to get these things done because if I don't do it, no one else will do it. And I'm also the most experienced person in the band and kind of have the only one with like a real name in the industry. So if I don't do a lot of these things, they just won't happen. And not because other people are lazy. They just don't have the the experience. Just, you're the dude. Yeah. So it's just, um, to me, it's always about that kind of is the juice wor- worth the squeeze kind of question. Like, yeah, there, sometimes you ask yourself, like, is is it worth all this? And, you know, it's about, to me, it's always about the human connection. I'm, you know, I was very fortunate to be in a band, God forbid, where it's the same group of guys for a long period of time. And that element kind of supersedes the business aspect of it. And with this band, I, I really, not, I didn't try to recreate that, but having a, a group of, of special individuals that, you know, perform a certain way together and have a personal connection, I think is really important because then it, it becomes about something else, you know, other than the, you know, cause not for nothing. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but me and you were involved in a band situation mm-hmm. that ended up not working out. And this was the project that kind of developed after that. And that situation, which I felt was very much more kind of calculated around the um, the business side and the kind of the marketability and the and this the sell of something being sellable and being like really into the weeds on that, it made me want to do the opposite, you know, not worry about any of that stuff and just make something you like. Because I I truly believe if you're a little, like I said, I think there's one thing if you're like, all right, we're making this music as a product. I think as long as you're honest with that, there's nothing wrong with it. But I also kind of get off on doing the opposite of just not worrying about that and kind of getting down to the purity of, of what it's about. You know, I think there is something, you know, it's like kind of reclaiming your innocence in a, in, a, in a certain way. Since you brought that up, there's something I wanted to ask you about. So after we did that ill-fated project, you moved to L.A. No, um, not for years, like probably not like for years, four years. Like, but it was technically after. <laughs> yes, true, true. No, I don't mean like two weeks, but I mean you moved to L.A. Uh, a few years later. And I know that you had mentioned it to me a few times that you wanted to do that. And then you actually went and did it. And the reason I want to talk about this is because we have lots of listeners from all over the world. And lots of them do want actual production careers and live in places, some in the U.S., some outside of the U.S., but they live in places where 
It's just not going to happen unless they move. And sometimes you can be in a situation like mine where you could live in a great place like Atlanta and an opportunity comes up in Orlando. And Orlando isn't as cool as Atlanta, but the opportunity's there and got to go. So I want to talk about your move to L.A., like what it took for you to actually bite the bullet and go, how you made it happen, and just your thoughts about uprooting yourself for real or imagined or perceived opportunities. Yeah, I. so it was always in the back of my head, essentially because I had the opportunity to spend some time out here. Um, I was working for a manager uh, that actually managed God forbid and she hired me so I spent some time out here and it just every time I was out in LA and I know it's kind of a very common line to talk about how cheesy LA it is and everyone's fake and all that stuff but me I just felt like everything was always a little more electrified just everything always seemed seemed, like anytime you played a show there it just seemed to mean more there were more important people there and I know that sounds shallow but what but the truth is sometimes when you do something in a place certain places it reverberates more it has more impact because important people there can make things happen for you you can get a record deal you can get a tour you can get in a magazine or on a tv show because you were just in the right place so yeah. i always felt that electric feeling every time i was there and Essentially, I was I had just quit. God forbid. This is summer of 2013. I had um, I was touring with Unearth, playing bass, and I had a moment with my singer. I was like, man, you know what? I was single. I didn't have a, you know didn't have a girlfriend, didn't have kids, didn't have any job per se, and, and things just in New York. I kind of like settled down to a certain degree. Like things were kind of easy for me. You know, I had a job. I was I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was like I was surviving, but I was like, you know what? I'm too comfortable. You know, like it's things are just too e- easy. I'm like, you know what? I may never get a chance to do something like this. You know, I was 30 something years old. I lived in New Jersey my whole life. I'm like, if I don't do this now, I'll never leave. You know, I'll just be one of those people that never did it. You know, like there's nothing wrong with staying in one place. But it's not really my personality. You know, I think I'm a, I'm a much more adventurous and kind of, you know, risk-taking person. So I just made a decision, you know, big decision. I'm not, <laughs> I'm usually not that guy, but, you know, that it, I was like, all right, I'm, 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 I'm going to do this. And I was lucky. I worked for the NBA for a little bit, so I saved up some money. You know, it was, it, it's tough, man. Like those, you know, when they talk about roots, when you've been in place for 30 years, those roots are deep. <laughs> And there's a gravity pulling you, trying to keep you there. You know, it's all your friends. It's your family. It's your stuff. Physically having a lot of stuff is a gravity that keeps you. And it's... Um, it's this weird knowledge of your hometown. It literally feels like home. Yeah, but I, I, I'd say I, I was very um, torn on that because my hometown is really New Brunswick, New Jersey. And I kind of left that. A few years earlier, you know, around that time that I was jammed with you and I pretty much lived by New, by New York City and that's where I worked. And that's really most. Of, so I feel like I was kind of a Jersey guy, but I was really be, kind of it was a more of a New York person at that point. Fair enough. I guess I just feel like Atlanta just keeps pulling me back. Yeah. No well, matter what, what I do. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, like I said, Atlanta is a cool place. New York is a cool place. Like, it's great. I love I love New York. But 
I just so it was more like half of it was almost not even about LA specifically. It was just about doing something dramatic and doing something changing your life and having you know going in the face of the fear of change and and you know so that was really important to me so i i decided to go and it was pretty devastating i I bought a car took a personal loan and the transmission broke twice driving cross country (laughs) and i was like and i was stuck in denver and well first i had to borrow money from everyone i knew to get the transmission because i didn't have enough money and then it broke again and then so i was stuck in denver and i ended up jumping on devil driver's tour bus to get to LA. So I got to LA and I was like defeated already. It was like, why did I do this? This was so stupid. You know, like I, I, what a way to start. Well, it was a lot of, to me, it was like the universe is telling me this was a mistake. Why, you know, and, and, or, may, I, or maybe the universe is saying this will work out if you just had the balls to, yeah. uh, to put well, up just, with this shit. But it's just saying it's, but it's the way of life telling you, you know, like, I was kind of feeling myself at that point, you know, because mm-hmm. I had left God Forbid, immediately started playing with On Earth, immediately got this awesome gig working for the NBA. Like, I was like, I can do anything I want. You know, like, I was really, you know, it's that, that yeah. thing of, of, of the humility of, yes, you can accomplish great things and confident people can do great things. But guess what? The world does not give a shit about your confidence. It, no, um, it could care less. <laughs> yeah, and and your your self assuredness, and it and it really, you know, I got humbled. You know, I came to L.A. no job, broke as all hell because I'd spent all my money on that. You know, most of my money in the three because I was stuck out there for three weeks. I didn't have a, a big buffer, and I was the brokest I'd ever been in my life. No joke, and just questioning everything and figuring everything out. But, you know, you know, I was lucky. I had some good friends out out here. Um, Lorenzo from Sworn Enemy and uh, John Berklin from Devil Driver. A lot of good friends out, out here that I reconnected with. And, um, you know, over time, you know, I just saw, you know, you start to just kind of learn new things about about the world. And you're just like the thing about I didn't realize it until I went back home, you know, like six months later. That, you know, on the East Coast, you know, it's just people are a little more downtrodden by their circumstances. I think the, the there's that kind of like working class uh, doldrums, you know, like the it just physically beats on. Yeah, it just I just think the weather, the public transportation, the tolls, the tra- it all kind of beats on people. Whereas I feel in, in Los Angeles, there's a bit more optimism and because it's true like there's just there's opportunity kind of around every corner if you're willing to 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 look for it and that's and i think the the one really important thing about being out here is even if you can't you know a lot of people i know they came out here for one thing but then ended up doing something else you know and that's just kind of being open to like I said, being open to those opportunities. Like you might be a musician, then you end up being an actor. You might be an actor, but then you end up being a comedian. You, you know what I'm saying? You might do one thing, end up becoming an artist manager or working at it. You know what I'm saying? There's just there's just so much going on. You can kind of, you know, things will just kind of trickle down to you. You know, like I wouldn't have ended up writing that song for the Body Count record if I wasn't out here and seeing Mike Gitter all the time and kind of just being on people's minds. Certain opportunities just open up 
you know, and then one thing leads to one other thing, which leads to another thing. You kind of just get wrapped up in, you know, and not for another thing about Los Angeles. There's just a lot of wealth here, you know, and there's a, com- tons of industries that exist just to kind of cater to that wealth. And you can kind of just be caught up in that. And there's just, just little things that, you know, and, you know, and I just think there's also a um, quality of life thing. It's just. It is sunnier. It is nicer. It is. It's gorgeous. Yeah. You know, I mean, you might pay the same amount of money as you pay for a place in New York, but it's bigger and you're, you can go on a hike you can go, you know, it's just, there's kind of just more fit. You kind of get more bang for your buck, but there's, listen, it's not perfect. It it has its issues, but I enjoy it now. You know, I definitely, I'm not looking to go anytime soon and if i did move i don't know if i would move back move back to new york i'd probably go somewhere else now do you think that you already having had a decade plus in the industry made your transition to la much more of a i guess smart move or i guess just a little easier i mean not to say it was easy is obviously not easy if you're broke as fuck and yeah. uh lost your car in the process but um but do you think that like as opposed to someone just moving from just say jordan with no connections because that's one of one of our uh listeners did that he moved from jordan to la but he's already making connections and uh already you know he's very dedicated but that that to me seems like Wow, that seems really tough. Well, I think it's, I definitely, well, I had an advantage and a disadvantage. So my, yes, my advantage is not only do I know a lot of people, but I also have a resume. You know, I I could work in certain, I could walk into certain doors. And if you come from a certain community, you're going to look at what I've done. It's going to have a certain value. So that, that definitely matters, but not for nothing. I was, you know, 33 years old by the time I moved here. If I'd have moved here when I was 26, you know, I, you know, I could be, you know, playing in, you know, Nickelback or something, but who knows what, if I would have come a little bit earlier when I was a little younger. And the truth is, you know, looks and youth and all that stuff is an asset in, in the entertainment industry and capitalizing on that at the right times. Cause these things, listen, I'm, I'm doing all right, but it, you know, these, you know, if certain opportunities will not be available to you, um, when you kind of price out in terms of age. So, which is fine because to be truthful in many ways, like I came out here to really give professional music another go. And, and I think I was almost looking at it more in that hired gun type of um, vein and kind of doing a lot of that stuff. I kind of realized that's not totally what I want to do. You know, even though I will do it from time to time, but if I, you know, I preferably, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to like, play with people I know and bands I like, I'm going to be really selective. I'm not just going to be, you know, the guy just in the background playing uh, D chords for dollars. <laughs> D it's, it's, chords for dollars. D chords for dollars.com. Call me up. <laughs> That's um, probably a great website. <laughs> no, but it's, it's like I said, you, you come out to, and I listen, I think you can make the same case for moving to, Austin, Texas, for Nashville, Tennessee, a vibrant place like Seattle or Portland, Oregon, these these hubs of creative activity, you know, these there's these big startup communities, but it, it, it really is about 
you know, and I think this, you know, if you know, to kind of, not to really bring politics into it, but I think not only mus- from a musician's standpoint, I think as a human being standpoint, if you're in a dead end place, if you're somewhere in the middle of Michigan where there's no jobs and there's no opportunities, why do you stay there? Go where the stuff is happening. And listen, it's hard. It's not easy to make it in these places, but you know, you you have to go where the opportunities are, I feel. I completely agree. And to that point, right now, I'm doing something that is the most successful thing I've ever done in my life, which I would have never, ever imagined doing, which is uh, the Nail the Mix and the URM Academy are far bigger than anything I've done, like way bigger. And I never imagine myself running an educational website. Um, In fact, I would have probably laughed at someone if they had come back in time and told me that I was going to do that. But I'm doing it, and I love it. And uh, it's gone way better than I could have ever imagined. And it's because I was open to kind of letting nature take its course and I was open to the idea of trying new things that were outside my comfort zone. Like, I remember the first time that Finn invited me on Creative Live, I was like, sure, why not? I'll try it. But it definitely seemed like a one-time thing mm-hmm. and not something that I took all that seriously. Lo and behold, it turned into a whole career. But I think that the reason I'm saying this is because you said about how people go to L.A., they think they want to do one thing, they come out doing another, and that's okay. I can say that in my personal life, I've done that. And I think that the people who actually stay in the same exact field that they say they're going in for in music and entertainment, that's a very... Very, very tiny percentage of people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, it's, in some ways, I kind of I have this like respect for people who they're just on it, like as a guitar player, they're just like years later, they're still working on their craft and they're in it, but it really isn't That's me. Cool. Like I've kind of realized it isn't me. Like in many, listen, I'm a good guitar player. I'm not the great greatest guitar player in the world, but I'm sure if all I did was play guitar, I'd probably be a lot better. But I'd rather spend time writing and spend time getting like, you know, I'd love to get in, into the world of comedy and acting and try because it's like, you know, in, in many ways, I, I'm almost if music was all I did, I feel like I would be bored. I'm too, you know, just just too turned on by too many different subject matters and, and, and mediums, you know, and it's like I, said, I just feel like in that respect, life is short. You know, you only get so many, you know, things like I said, I'm not, I'm not getting any younger, but I still don't think that should affect like you wanting to explore and try different things because I, I just think it's, you know, the, the, the diversity of experience is, is probably one of the most valuable things to me. Well, if you also, if you think about, I mean, I know some of those dudes who, when I met them 20 years ago, all they did was play guitar six hours to eight hours a day and now all they do is play guitar six to eight hours a day and uh those are the guys that are the very very best i've ever met at playing guitar and they're also some of the guys who people who listen to guitar music look up to and uh and that's great 
But the thing is that those guys don't have to try to be obsessed about guitar. They just are. Yeah. It is it is who they are. Like it's not me and it's not you. It's it's them though. And that's like I couldn't keep that up for that many years for those decades because I'm just not that interested in guitar. But more power to them for being that into it because it's because of their obsession that the the craft of being a badass guitar player moved forward. But I do think it's incredibly important to be honest with oneself about what you are and what you aren't because if you're not that dude like if you're not that dude who's at a party and starts to stress out because you're not holding a guitar <laughs> if you're that dude that doesn't feel like healthy in the brain unless they played guitar for a few hours that day or you know if you're not that guy like when you go on YouTube you're looking up guitar all the time all you do is guitar you live breathe think guitar if you're not that guy then that's okay but uh, better not pretend like you're that guy because there are guys who actually do that and they're probably going to be a lot better. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's... Um, I think I definitely felt that pressure a lot more in the last few years of doing God Forbid because heavy metal guitar is very much like a sport. Yes, it is. <laughs> and there's this need, I think, to keep up with the Joneses as far as technical prowess and just generally being impressive, you know? Mm -hmm. And also that the fans, their threshold for what is technically valid, the, the bar constantly keeps getting raised, you know? And stuff that sounded crazy, you know, like me, like I, you know, so I'd point out, you know, like death, sound of perseverance at the time when that came out, I think 1998, where you're like, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard, and it's so next level. I feel like if you played that for some kid who's like the Faceless and Necrophages are their favorite bands, and they never heard it, they'd probably think it was very simplistic and boring. You know, <laughs> I mean, maybe not. Yes. Maybe no, no. Hopefully, yeah, they I would like it. I know, or they more than likely they'd be like, I guess you had to be there. Yeah, and that's, and I think that's that's uh, you know, the, there's this trajectory with. With all art, it's like listening to Lenny Bruce do comedy and compare it to, you know, Dave Chappelle's new stand-up or something. Like, there, it goes on this forward Or Bill Burr thing. or something. Yeah, just any, like, just the, the art forms move. If they become more complex and they build, you know, they, they're standing on the shoulders of giants. And that became tough for me for guitar because I didn't view the instrument to be a competitive sport. I was... I like it as a form of expression and as a tool to, you know, to let the world know who I am. And who also I use it to connect with other musicians. That to me is the great, like there's nothing interesting to me about sitting there playing guitar by myself to impress people. It's the most boring thing to me in the world. What's interesting to me is connecting with other musicians in a room and creating something or vibing on something or getting to a place where you're not thinking and you're just being and what that's what's interesting to me and that became difficult i think um in the last few years of doing god forbid and kind of made me a little more disillusioned with writing heavy metal is that it becomes this clinical technical antiseptic rigid form of of me against you and i'm the best and if you're not as good as this guy then you don't 
factor in and, and it's just like I'm I I, I kind of not interested in, and and it's gotten even more extreme the other way especially being able to play in a, something like Vegas Nerve where there's some technical stuff going on and some interesting guitar work but I don't write stuff for that it's I'm trying I, I want it to be interesting to my ear not to or to make me feel something not to impress someone or or be this you know, I don't know. Just it, it doesn't doesn't move me anymore like that. Fair enough, but I just I just gotta say though, not blowing smoke up your ass. You're a pretty damn good guitar player, and uh, what you have going for you, that a lot of dudes don't have, in my opinion, is that you just sound good. And that doesn't sound like much, but that's to me is almost everything. Because I know lots of guys who are fucking fast as shit that sound like shit. But uh, you've got this tone in your hands that's just like badass. It just well, sounds, you just sound great. And obviously, if other, you know, Lamb of God shit is not easy. So obviously, if you can hang with them, you can pretty much hang. So give yourself a little credit. But <laughs> I totally, I totally know what you mean about not, not, it just not being on your mind to get obsessed with the minutia of the most modern guitar techniques because that kind of becomes your thing. But in spite of that, there's also kind of a base level of proficiency that I expect out of bands. Like, I can be very critical. Like, a lot of times I'll be at a show, for example, with someone, and I'll start talking about the band, and then if you didn't know me or if you look at you might think I'm talking shit about them. But I'm not. I just want them to to excel. And when I hear bands, this is kind of like the thing you did on the Metal Suck show when you were critiquing the demos. And you have that same kind of ear where it's not you're not hating on the band or the musicians. You just want them. You want them to to not make this these mistakes and that these little simple fixes or paying attention to certain details maybe they don't understand. That they can just... Totally. It's not hate at all. It's, I just want it to be better. Yeah, and they can, and it's things they can control, but they have to be aware of it. And it's like, I've almost even thought, and and the thing is, or I'll see a band and I'll see that what works, but what doesn't work will just bother me. And it won't allow me to really fully enjoy what's going on because I'm like, this one glaring thing is just, you know, and it's, and like I said, it's, you know, it, it might be, even though, like I said, I'm not the, I, you know, I think I'm a pretty good guitar player, but I don't think I'm the greatest, but there's also certain basic technique things that I think a lot of bands lack that will bother me while we're like, cause it's just to me that's, but that's just hitting a certain basic proficiency that needs to be there for me to kind of consider a band to be at a respectable or, or quasi-professional level. So so I'm kind of, I'm on both angles. Like I said, I'm not overly concerned with the crazy, you know, super virtuosic technicality, but at the same time, I don't want bands to fall be- below a certain threshold <laughs> of just being generally competent, you know? I completely agree with you. The, uh, the, f- funny thing is about those crits man is that the ones i did on metal sucks those were songwriting crits but on this podcast we do mix crits every single month and also part of what we do with some of our subscribers to our upper level is that we will crit them one-on-one on skype a few times a month and man sometimes we go really hard on our critiques like 
down to telling people to just start all over, you know, trash whatever they did, just you got to start all over. But man, the thing is, when you're working on something, it's kind of like when you're dating somebody, you might choose to overlook something because for whatever reason, maybe you don't know how to fix it. Maybe you're not aware it's there. Maybe you like something else about that person so much that you're going to overlook the fact that they're a horrible alcoholic or something. But there's when we're working on our own music, we just have these blind spots that sometimes it takes somebody else to be like, hey, buddy, these guitars are completely out of tune. What the fuck are you doing? Like, tune your goddamn instrument. Or the verse and the chorus are almost the exact same riff like what and the vocal pattern doesn't change like come on well here's what i wonder though and i think it can kind of go both ways do you have you ever been involved with things like that where you're just like nah man you're doing everything right yes Does it ever happen it goes that way sometimes okay yes absolutely 100 percent. i think you have because like i said i would listen to your critiques and I'm like and it's amazing because I feel like there's certain things you pick up that I just don't even have an ear for but it become once you say it then I'm like oh yeah I see what he I see what he's going there but like I mean you definitely have this this angle of 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 looking at things but it's funny I think you can go the opposite way too like you can have like a Chinese democracy situation where the band and the people involved are so critical of themselves that it never ends. That's bad, too. Uh, but that's really, really bad. But the thing is, I, I will submit that I feel like in Chinese democracy, they probably should have had someone, not me, but someone like me, come in and be like, guys, fucking record's done. Is it guys or is it really just an Axl Rose situation? Well, though, I mean, what one a, guy, one perfectionist. What a, well, either, either way, whether it's one guy who's slowing everything down or it's just the the culture of the band slowing everything down. I think that uh, in those situations, it is important to have for in- a producer, for instance, be like, guys, this stuff isn't important anymore. The songs are great. We're done. The end. My job's done here. Go home. I, I feel like that knowing when to stop is just as important as knowing when to keep going. And for instance, with mix crits, we we deal with this all the time. Like right now, we have Country Month going on at Nail the Mix. It's the first time we've ever done country. It's just an experiment. You know, we did <laughs> Meshuga last month, <laughs> but this month, well, we're we're doing. Uh, we've got four hits that this dude Billy Decker mixed, and he's like one of the top mixers in the genre. And we just feel like. People want to get good at mixing. They need to get good at mixing, not just mix Meshuggah. And these country tracks are so well produced and arranged. And it's just so perfect that I feel like the big challenge for people is going to be to not overmix them. Yeah. I think, and I, I'm hearing people's mixes already, and it's like they're way overcooking these things. Like they don't, they don't know when to chill out and stop because it already sounds too good. It already sounds good. It, it's already great. It's ready to go. So I, I feel like, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. The bands or mixers or whoever can nitpick things straight into the ground. They fly that plane right into a mountain if they're not careful. So 
part of part of critiquing people is when it is awesome already to tell people to just fucking chill submit it it's done well, well it's definitely that i think that scenario of you know the garbage in garbage out kind of thing that listen if you give a mixer great you know basic tracks it's just going to make their job easier. Same thing with like a live engineer. If the band sound, you know, it's kind of hard to make a band like Killswitch Engage sound bad live because they play great, their tones are incredible, they're consistent, they're, you know, it's it's, you know, that 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 thing is is always going going to be there. Do you so as a just a a, a producer and mixer now, do do you get a lot of work outside of the metal realm no and to uh, just to clarify i uh i'm doing nail the mix full time now i'll like only do studio stuff like once or twice a year now oh wow this this thing kind of took off and it's been incredible so but towards the tail end of when i was uh to where i was i guess mixing full time no i wasn't getting much work outside of metal but I think that that's because I worked at a big studio that was known for metal towards the tail end of that whole thing. However, before my band was signed, I did my own studio for years, you know, before I got known in as a metal dude. And at that point in time, yeah, I would have country artists come in. I'd have folk artists. I'd have all, all the genres, pretty much. It wasn't until I got known in a genre and made friends in a genre that like only that genre would pop up. So I feel like my experience pre getting the record deal is probably a lot more like our audience's experience because most of them aren't known in the industry. And so if they want to make money at recording, they have to record who will pay them. And you can't, you can't always choose, you know, you can't always choose your clients or, you know, at least not at the beginning. So I do think that it's a good idea for them to learn multiple genres, if that makes sense. Well, the thing that's interesting to me because I'm, you know, with Vegas Nerve being more of a, a rock band, you know, being kind of more, you know, like you, you start analyzing production in a, in a different way and looking at different just standards like you're you're you know, you start checking out different all right no like I'm, i'll listen to a, a queens of stone age record or uh you know um you know just i don't know it's it's just interesting to me you know how that kind of changes and because just because the metal world it, it becomes so i guess everyone starts kind of going from the same playbook I think in a lot yes. of ways, at least it has, I'd say in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. And, and just because the budgets aren't there and everyone's using the same plugins and using the same software and using an Axe FX and it be, and it, it's, it, you know, I've, I've noticed how it, it's in a way it's great because it's kind of equalized where overall, even like hardcore records sound great now, you know, like for like signed bands, you know, they, they have these really, you know, the work like Kurt Ballou has done with bands like Code Orange and stuff like that. And you're like, damn, man, these, even these records sound great. And you, unsigned bands that because of resources like Nail the Mix, people without a ton of money can actually get stuff that uh, has a really high, high quality. So I think there's, there's good, there's good sides and bad sides to the, 
I guess the sameness of, of some of the tools. I will tell you though that the best mixers that we've had on all draw from multiple genres. Yeah. Without a doubt. They're none of the mixers that we've had on Nail the Mix that are really fucking awesome at mixing, none of them are those dudes who only listen to metal and only copy metal mixes and if it's not metal fuck it like they're not none of them are like that they all listen to mixes from a wide spectrum of genres and the thing is a lot of them try to record or mix stuff in different genres you just don't hear about it as much because you know in the metal world lots of people just focus on metal and so you don't you don't hear about a lot of this other work that these people do but the best guys aren't uh, aren't typically just I guess their brain isn't just stuck in this one mode, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, metal has to be the hardest music to mix though, because you're just dealing with it's fucking speed, hard. low tuning. You're essentially like you have a kick drum, but you're trying to. But the way we make kick drum sound in metal is the opposite of the way a kick drum actually sounds in real life. And it's just trying to organize chaos. <laughs> yeah, everything has distortion on it. Yeah, it's it's nuts, and it and um, you know, you know, what's funny. So I I don't know if you read this article. Actually, I wrote it for Creative Life, so you probably did see it. The one it was titled "Did Pantera Ruin Metal yeah. Modern Metal Production?" Yes, <laughs> that's a great that's a great article, by the way. And like I said, and. and even though the title kind of insinuated that I was kind of shitting on Pantera, I really wasn't. I was more, it was more an examination of how we kind of got to this, the modern metal sound, which is uh, very per- pervasive. But you know what's crazy was Pantera's sound guy hit me up on Facebook to tell me I, I hit the nail on the head <laughs> with that. And I was like, whoa. That's I think crazy. we did. <laughs> Like I said, I'm not. I do like my own little home demos. I, you know, and I've recorded a bunch of records with some really great producers, but I'm still kind of a novice when it comes to recording. I don't have much technical skill or or know how, but but I do listen with a a keen ear, and I and I care about production. And if there's a a good record, but the production doesn't do it for me, it makes it difficult for me. You know, I I do care about production, so it's something I, I I pay attention to. So it's a good thing there are people like you out there actually know what they're talking about. Oh, <laughs> uh, I just don't want production to suck. I, like the thing is, okay, so you know how we've talked about a lot how the bar has gone up for technical musicianship. There's also been an opposite thing that's been happening, which is just as much as there's this. I guess, surge in proficiency. There's also a surge in suckiness from a lot of bands who rely on technology and producers who try to rely on technology who... Cut corners. Yeah, cut corners or only write in Guitar Pro, edit everything together because people can't play. Not because it's an artistic choice, but because people can't play. And I feel like it's hurt music to a degree. Like I feel like if... I want to go back to what we were talking about with labels earlier. With a lot of these bands that got signed and thrown in with producers shouldn't have been signed in the first place. They weren't good enough. They didn't have that basic level of proficiency that you were talking about that you want. Like, I know what you're talking about. Just a basic level of, like, competency is not there with a lot of these 
newer bands and the budgets are so low that they get sent they you know they'll record with their buddy who doesn't know how to record and it'll sound okay just because technology is so good that you know the bottom has risen a bit like it's a lot easier to get a mediocre recording than it's ever been it's just as hard as ever to get yeah. an amazing one but it's a lot easier to get a mediocre one my challenge with nail the mix is to try to combat that and to help people who don't have budgets or who don't have access to an internship or whatever help them get better so that um i guess that downward trend and skill starts to disappear a little bit I hope just a little bit. Yeah, I, I I know what you're saying. It's it's the idea that the technology is there, so in a way, it actually can make a band kind of lie a little bit about how good they really are. <laughs> and so they, they they can't really they're not as good as the recording, but the technology gives them a way to to fudge the numbers, so to speak. Yeah, but I'm talking about extreme versions of that because I feel like maybe that's always been the case that like bands fudge it a little in the studio like even back in the 70s they would have session musicians come yeah. in you know when like a guy was too much of a drug addict to play on his own records or you know I, I think that the studio has always presented an idealized version of mm -hmm. what the band is and that's okay because a record is forever and a band is comprised of human beings and some days might not be their best day in the studio right like yeah and the record shouldn't suffer because someone's having a bad day. However, what I'm talking about, I think, takes it too far to where it fakes it to a degree that they will never be able to accomplish. Like well, it, pres it presents this this image, uh, this well, the sonic image of this band that's just not true. And so they go out and play live and... Uh, they have to use backing tracks on everything because the band can't actually play anything. Yeah, I I, I definitely understand that. And I think that's something that um, in many ways, it's I think that falls on the fans. And, and, the, and the reason why I say that is that if you have these bands where they're really the half of what they're hearing or more is on the on a track and fans don't really care, bands are going to keep doing it. You know, um, there's really no punishment. And I think there's also a thing, too, where you see a band that runs tracks and they sound really great. And you see a band that doesn't use tracks and they sound good, but it doesn't quite sound as perfect and, and it doesn't have that sheen, you know. And then you get kind of judged for that in a certain way. So then in many ways, then other bands start using tracks to try to keep up so that they don't feel like they're, you know, not holding it down. But I'm, I'm kind of go on the, in, in going in the other direction, man, I kind of miss the nineties and kind of even with the recordings, like you listen to a lot of those, you know, like Soundgarden recordings where it was, you know, there's like one vocal track <laughs> on the verse, you know, and there's a, there's a looseness in a, and, and more of a, a vibe where now like I appreciate a recording where they don't tune the vocal and it's just it's a little out maybe but it's a little more human like I, I know a lot of there's been a lot of hullabaloo in the metal community over the um suicide silence record and some people you know just saying that oh the vocals are kind of slightly out of tune in some spots but in some ways I'm like 
I kind of appreciate it, you know, just the the balls to kind of just go out there and and be what it is, you know. I'm kind of, you know, I I pine pine for that, you know, or even just like a guy like Dave Grohl going and buying that the the board from uh, Sound City was it Sound City? Yeah, I yeah. believe it is. Yeah, and, you know, and, and doing records on tape and not doing to a click and just you know and just I you know and maybe that's just a little bit of that. You know, I don't know if that's nostalgia, but I definitely listen to a lot of those older those records from that that time period where they sound great, but they're definitely not. It's going for something different, you know, and that whole like, well, we got to sound like it's like you listen, turn on Octane, you know, on, and listen to like the radio rock bands. And there's a very simple, there's very, very similar stuff from band to band because they're trying to appeal to this standard but it just kind of homogenizes everything in a lot of ways in my, my, my view i agree i think that there's a fine line with tracks and you're right it's kind of the audience's fault because they accept it but the audience is speaking with their pocketbook in that ticket sales are down and album sales are down are ticket sales i don't think that ticket sales are down i just think there's more shows you know i don't you know the, the big shows aren't having trouble selling any tickets you know, Guns N' Roses goes on tour, sold well, yeah. out. You know, well, yeah, of course. Uh, you know, Lady Gaga goes on tour, sold out. I think, I don't think ticket. I think ticket sales are actually. If you look since the record sales started really going down, we sell way more tickets. It's just there's just more acts on the road. Um, so it's really, you know, you you know, it's it's difficult to look at those things in in like kind of a macro sense. You know, you have to kind of understand that. Well, who are ticket sales down for? Are you sure? Let's, should we look at the numbers? Because I get, you know, I get these, um, like I'm on this uh, couple of newsletters, you know, that kind of give you numbers for what bands, and, and a lot of bands are doing just fine. <laughs> it really depends on who you're talking about, you know? No, I, I think we're on the same uh, on the same newsletters, actually. Yeah, probably. Uh, there, there's some good ones. It always kind of blows my mind. But I just thought that the overall pot for live ticket revenue was down that's what i thought but i could be wrong if it's down it might be down from maybe a certain peak and maybe and i think that stuff goes goes up and down but overall here's the thing look at for example in america what's happened with the the festival culture you know it started with you know bonnaroo and coachella and stuff like that but now it's filtered since mayhem has ended we now have these destination festivals rock on the range and rocklahoma and stuff like that that do much bigger numbers than mayhem and ozfest did so people and you have you have things where it's, it's starting where like rock on the range sells out before they know who's playing like uh and same thing with coachella much like some of the european festivals so i think the experience of going to a place and seeing a band or seeing music or an, an event, it's something you, the internet can't, hasn't been able to replace yet. So there's still a, a very high value people put on that and they're willing to spend a lot of money to go, to go to these, these things, you know? So it's just a matter of, I think in, in many ways, sometimes we get are skewed because of our little 
pocket of the world, you know, we, we kind of see the, the ebbs and flows of, well, this band was doing these kind of numbers. Now they're doing these kind of numbers. But is that reflective of just that little piece of the pie or the whole or concerts as a whole? But I, I think overall, the live music realm is healthy. I, mean, I live in California. There'll be within like one one day. It was like Meshuggah was playing baby metal, you know, uh, you know, Cavalera conspiracy, not the, the, like the Cavalera dudes were doing their show with Black Dolly Murder and like all three shows were sold out. So, I mean, that issue isn't, isn't being hurt here, you know, as far as I know. So, but you know, it's hard to say. We, we'll have to look into that. We'll get back to you with the numbers. Yeah. I'm actually curious now uh, because, because you're bringing up really good points. I'm actually curious and I want to go look. I think you might be right, but I actually want to go look and see, and I'm gonna hit you up when the podcast is over. Once I find out, oh, actually, I'm, I'm looking at you're looking right now. Right now? Yeah, All so right. I'm on Polestar. So the top 100 tours of North America grossed a record 3.34 billion dollars in 2016, seven percent from to, or up from 2015. Damn. So my instincts were correct, but I'm not, I'm not going to break my arm, pat myself on the back. I just, you know, <laughs> I try and stay up on these things. And I think, and it's, um, and, and that's the thing about pessimistic or optimistic uh, views into, into trends is we got to look at the data. We can't just, you know, a lot of times people say, well, it feels like ticket sales are down. Well, let's look it up. Let's see what's going on. But that was the, keep in mind, that was the top 100 tours, right? Of that year. So that's, and this is the music industry, much like the real world. No, the, dude, I'm wrong. I'm straight up wrong. I'm looking on somewhere else, and uh, it's it went down in 2010. I'm I'm looking at the, the overall revenue, yeah, in North America from 1990 to 2016, and in 1990 is 1.1 $1. $1 billion in 2016 is 7.3 billion dollars and it's gone up every single year besides 2009 to 2010 and then around 1994 to 1995 it also went down yeah and i think that's a reflection of a i think there is people do have a little more excess income to spend and the people who do well are going out and and I think when you look at, and I think people don't really look at things like this, is that, yeah, people aren't buying records, but they that money is going to other things. You know, it's not like that just disappears. So maybe you might sell more concert tickets, maybe you might sell more t-shirts. We can't really look at these trends, you know, and, and you know, the thing is, the thing about data, certain data only tells you part of the story, right? So if I look at, well, record sales are going down and you know in this trend well yeah but there's other factors that happen outside of that and we have we have to take into in, in, into account like i said if you we you know if you want to look things do look at things through the prism of here's why everything is negative it's very easy to do that but i think you know you have to kind of step back in, in many of the, these cases to find out what's going on because a lot of times there's a thousand different threads and you have to put, you have to figure out, figuring out the entire narrative of what actually is going on can become a lot more complex and can't be encapsulated in one tight headline often. No, I'm looking at a quote right here where uh, Michael Rapino, um, president of Live Nation, 
is saying that talking about their record years and saying that in 2016 we have had three days selling over 900,000 tickets placing them among the top 15 days of all time and setting us up to deliver robust growth in ticket sales for the year yeah it's great but, that is great but here's the here's the the rub on that who's making the money it's the Rolling Stones and Paul McCartney and Guns N' Roses and The Who and The Eagles and Bruce Springsteen. It's the rich are getting richer and it's, you know, how that filters down to the independent music world and the underground communities, I think, is, you know, it's it's hard to say. But keep in mind, those the underground world has always fought for scraps that's just how it's how it's always been i remember going to hardcore shows when i was younger and there'd be 200 people at the show and to you that was like a huge wow everyone's here it's a, it's a big show you know it, <laughs> so it's and you know it's all it's all about the 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 perspective on it. i mean people don't even realize i mean no one played stadiums before the beatles that wasn't even a thing and there's you know now this year there's like you know 20 people going out playing stadiums like that's that's crazy, you know that the Beatles were the biggest band of all time, and they were the first band to be in stadiums. And now it's like, oh, you know, Foo Fighters are playing a stadium, and Taylor Swift is playing a stadium, and Metallica is going on a stadium tour. You know, so it's it's kind of crazy how how these economies have have shifted, and that we we our perception of of how big a band was or how big things like I think a lot of times we just look at the 80s or even the 70s for this this era of like arena rock and well that doesn't exist well yeah but it's you know it, it, it manifests itself in a lot of different ways you know there there wasn't a hip-hop industry you know before the mid 80s you know now you have Drake is going out doing multiple nights in arenas Connie is going out and doing multiple nights in, in arenas these are genres that didn't even exist you know before a certain time so and new and with that, just new economies, you know, grow up, and it's uh, it's important. I think it's it's great. It, it it shows that people really still do care about music. They still care about entertainment, going out, getting out of the house, not just sitting in front of a computer. You know, it still matters to people, and that's that's important. What's amazing is when you actually look at the numbers, you can't be negative. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could be if you were. Uh, could could you could if, say I'm not in Coldplay. I'm not. In, I'm. I'm not in Muse. So my band, like the, there is. I think there is that. The 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 negative angle of it is that it's no different than the regular economy. The people at the top are doing very well, <laughs> and and the you know and that figuring out how to square that circle is to develop just like the you know you can say the u.s but you, i think you just say the western world is how do we develop the robust middle class of the 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 music world or entertainment industry that's that's the difficult area uh, and kind of full circle that goes back to artists nowadays knowing what to do with that five thousand dollars <laughs> It's a, it's a lot more on them now, I think. I think that's kind of the big thing, is that now it's a lot more on the individual to know how to invest their time and their money in order to get the results that they want. Whereas before, uh, one thing that we can't deny is that record sales are down and that the label apparatus is not what it used to be. And so instead of that, 
you got to figure out your own way. And the beauty, though, is that as we have seen, it's not like the money's not out there. So you just do have to figure it out, though. And part you can't rely on methods from even 10 years ago to uh, to work for you now. No, the onus on the creative person, the the entrepreneur, however, however you want to put it, the, the self-starter, to be creative and about finding new ways. Because here's the thing. This thing is like, uh, it's like a jump to conclusions, Matt. No, it's like... <laughs> It's it's like a, a it's a moving target, you know. And the, the the listen the techniques from three years ago that were successful won't work the same because people catch up on a certain thing and then it gets flooded and then people move on and it's it's something you constantly have to work on. I don't I don't have it figured out, you know. I'm I'm kind of just now like I did this thing. I don't know if you saw this on on Facebook where I put a post saying I was going to cut out a bunch of people on Facebook, not in a spiteful way, just to say, hey, I've had this Facebook page for eight years. Probably a bunch of it is like people who added me because they were a God forbid fan in 2009. I didn't see that. Yeah. And they probably have kids and they've moved on and they're not like, like music and the stuff I'm doing is not on their radar. And that's no like diss to them. It's just like if I, so if I post something the people that are actually seeing what do they care? Are they even seeing it? So I'm like, I'm like, for someone like me who writes articles and makes podcasts and who needs listeners, I have, you know, thousands of pending friend requests and followers, people that care about what I'm doing right now. Dude, you're a, you're a smart motherfucker because having an engaged audience is much more important than having a bigger audience. And and what you're talking about isn't even getting a smaller audience. It's just replacing the inactive part with a more active and engaged audience. Yeah. Well, the thing is, it's just that I was thinking about this, that a lot of times we look at these num- like these number samples like they don't matter, right? Like the fact that I can put out a podcast and 5,000 people can listen to it. God forbid never played a show and 5,000 people showed up. Do you know what I'm saying? Where it was our our show, like a headline show. Yeah. That, like, it just, because on a computer, you just see a number that says 5,000. It kind of doesn't mean anything. But if you picture what 5,000 people looks like (laughs) and what that really, like, what, think of a venue that could fill. You're like, wow, that's, if you could, and and I think sometimes it, it feels a little dehumanizing to, Think of people as like, oh, here's this consumption unit. I can sell this person. It's not about that. It's about just these these mediums have power. And if I can write something or create something and have a thousand people or two thousand people connect to it in a way that means something, that's incredible. That's that's it's just amazing to be able to have that reach and have to do something that people care about. So I was like, I need to like I'm even thinking about creating a second Facebook page with nothing but with people I don't know, just people that are just fans of what I do and almost as an experiment, right? Like, so if I have two Facebook pages, one of them is half the people I actually know, friends, family, acquaintances, stuff like that. And then, and then the other half is is fans, but most of them fans from years ago. And then I have a new page with maybe two or 3000 friends and they're all people I just added. 
and then post the same thing on both pages and see what happens. Like things like that, like doing like these little like marketing experiments, you know, or or A B testing of a certain thing, like, all right, well that's getting this kind of feedback over here. And because I I think about half my Facebook page, there's people I know from high school, they don't care about the new song I put out, you know, the article I just wrote about Pantera production. You know, they're just there because we're whatever, you know. It's just whatever we're, we're on Facebook. It's not really a thing. But what about you compare that with some someone who actually the only reason they're following me on there is because they like my work. You know, it's interesting. I, I think there's a lot of merit to that, actually, because of how the Facebook algorithms work and how they, you know, how long story short is the more people are interested in your content, the more your content will get shown at the top of people's feeds. So to replace the weeds with people who give a shit could be very, very productive for you. Well, I get the thing is with all the, my stuff, like, for example, on my website, I, it tells me where all the traffic comes from. Mm-hmm. And it's 80, 90 percent Facebook. You know, my podcast, it tells me how, how it's spreading around. So, you know, and it's, I guess it's, it's difficult for probably some people to understand who don't use these mediums for in, in a business respect. But for, for someone like me, like it's, I do use it for personal stuff, but it's, I'm very aware of what I put out there. It's not. I do not get too personal. <laughs> Who are you using for your podcast stats, by the way? Uh, I have Lib, uh, the I use Libsyn, and that's just who I host it, and they have their own stats in just on the interface. Cool. So it's um, you know, it's 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 definitely cool. And then I also upload you know to SoundCloud, but it's mostly I think most of my stuff goes through iTunes and all that. Does so does Libsyn? Factor in SoundCloud and iTunes. No, no, no. SoundCloud is, is separate. I just do that myself. But yeah, it has it has the numbers and it and it 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 fluctuates and it's um, you know, depending on the episode. But it's it's all that stuff is helpful, you know, to kind of understand. All right, well, what what works? This episode did really well, and this episode didn't. Or what days am I getting the most downloads? Or maybe I should release on that day. Things like that, you know, just um, you know, but but just understanding that. You know, like, for example, if I have 5,000 Facebook friends and 4,000 followers, right, I put out a post, but I have no idea how many people see that. I don't. There's no way to know, you know, but I do. I, I can know from putting out an article on my website where the traffic is coming from. I can see it's mostly Facebook. Right. So if I can increase that pool you know, and double or triple that, all of a sudden I have an article that has a thousand views. Now that's 3000 views, you know, and I was actually, and I was getting even deeper with it. And I was like, so it's more valuable to have a younger person, right? So let's say you have a young, uh, someone who's 26 and who's 26. And then, but then they also have 3000 friends. So let's say that's worth infinitely more than someone who's in their who's like in their forties who has kids who's not really in tune with what's going on, and then they only have three hundred friends. Because think about if they share, if someone a younger person who's engaged in in what's going on shares something, now you have more reach 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's almost like this this um, exponential view of the way. Like, and like I said, I never thought about this stuff before, but now I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, you got to think about it now. Yeah. So it's um, because the thing is, like I said, you Twitter. I have six thousand something people on Twitter, but Twitter's like you know, it's like throwing you know a, a picket sign in in the ocean. You know, it kind of gets seen. You know, if someone's on there at the moment. <laughs> Half of the pages on there are like banned pages that add me or some fake, you know, who knows how many people are really connected, you know, Instagram is a little more, you know, it's just this voyeuristic thing. It kind of exists. It's difficult to really reach people directly. I don't really, you know, all that, but Facebook, we know kind of what it can do. It's very definitive. So it's like, all right, I have to maximize these things when you're, you know, when you're someone like me who's involved in all these different ventures. So I follow facebook stats as religiously as possible we uh we spend a lot of our time on stats and analytics because you're kind of just pissing in the wind if you don't know what's going on because there's so much so many different ways to do things online so many different just within one format like one social network there's so many different ways to go about it that you need to get data. You have to, or you know, you're just throwing money away. So I think that it, that you're very, very smart to keep an eye on that stuff. We we put a lot of time into it, and it's still tough. Even with you know, we've just now gotten our data game a lot better than it used to be. But even so, it's still tough. And we have multiple people on it. But it just helps, man. It helps to know when people care, where they're coming from, what they care about, what kinds of posts they care about, what what matters to them. So yeah, that and you that, can make better and decisions. And it's amazing what you can do when you actually just ask people those questions. Yes. Like, hey, what, what do you guys, like, is it annoying when I do this? Is it, you know, like just little little things like that, asking little poll questions because you'll post one thing, like maybe it's semi-promotional and it kind of, no one will really kind of pay attention to it. But then you'll ask just like, so, hey, what do you guys think about this? And then all of a sudden 400 comments or, you know, it's amazing like how you can actually engage people the right way. And there's also something that's really important. Like a lot of people would comment and say, hey man, I don't necessarily comment on something or like something, but... I do like what you do and keep doing it, keep it coming. And that's encouraging that just because someone is silent or necessarily um, engaged in, in, in a way that's visible to you doesn't mean they aren't paying attention. So that's, that's you know, something that's, that's helpful as well. Absolutely. We actually ask our audience in our private group all the time what they want more of. And we pay close attention. Sometimes we have to make executive decisions, though, because we realize that what they think they want and what they actually need are two different things, but we're always paying attention. And I think that it's part of our success is that we do pay attention and we do alter course based on what people want. And you are absolutely right. A lot of people who are not visibly active are still paying attention. And lots of times they will respond when asked directly. Sometimes they end up having the most thoughtful feedback too. So it is important to reach out to your fans or customers or clients, whatever you want to call it, that might not be as 
active, the lurkers, because <laughs> uh, there's they usually actually make up the majority of the people. Mm-hmm. It's actually usually a minority that are vocal. So if you have 500 people that are regularly commenting, there's probably about 4,500 people who read the stuff and don't say anything. Yeah, it's 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 cool. It's interesting, man. One one thing. So with um, Vegas Nerve, when we did our Kickstarter. One of the things I started doing was just literally messaging people directly. I say, hey, I'm, I'm working. You probably, you know, I don't know if you give a shit about what I'm doing, but I have a new band, first new band since God forbid. We're doing this thing. Check it out. And that was by far the most effective tactic was just literally reaching out to people, saying what's up and connecting with them. And and it's in, in many ways, it's actually kind of like it tickles this kind of thing in your in your in your stomach about like, oh, man, like. You can connect to people, and even though there's, you know, you have five, like it's difficult to actually connect to that many people. But if you're willing to put in the time, you can get out there, and you know, it, it's the new, ver- you know, it's it's you know the new version of going out there and handing out flyers and saying hi and kissing babies, and you can do that stuff virtually. It's just most of us just don't have the time. That's the thing is, even people, it's not even about wanting to work hard. It's just that shit takes hours and hours and hours out of your out of your day and the older you get and the more responsibilities you have you just don't even have the option to do a lot of that stuff so i i think a lot of people the stuff they do it's not even because they don't want to do it or they're they're not willing to do it it's just it's very time consuming to be that connected one-on-one but you can make stuff happen if you're willing to really go you know door to door so to speak digitally (laughs) Man, I got to say, part of the reason my band got signed back in the day was because I handed out 24,000 demos. 24,000? Yeah, man. It's over the period of a couple years. And I printed most of them myself. And wow. over, Yeah, that's. it was a huge effort. It paid off. But if, okay, so if I felt like 10 years or 12 years later, I was above that. Maybe what I'm doing now wouldn't be as successful as it is because when we first started, we started as a podcast first before we morphed into what we are doing now. Uh, The podcast was our original thing and it was a subscription podcast and I reached out to over a thousand people through Facebook Messenger who had been following my ventures and it took time. It took me like a month to get through the list. It was well What did you what, what what was your pitch? Just like, "Hey, check out my new podcast." Or? It's like, "Hey, you like my stuff on Creative Live. I know you do." And it was to the people who have bought like my Creative Live stuff and who have followed my educational ventures. My pitch was, "Hey, I know you like this. If you like that, you'll like my podcast because we talk about the same stuff and it's every single week and yeah. we're talking with lots of great producer so it's just more of what i know you like so check it out do you have a a mailing list yeah and you just do like newsletters and and stuff like that or just kind of blasts on what's going on like how because that's the thing like thing i really i should have had three years ago and i just haven't um just start start now yeah well yeah i mean I, i was thinking about it's kind of that same thing, like just going and reach. Hey, if you want to stay, because the thing is, like I said, with these mediums, we know we physically can't reach everyone. But if you have people who want to know, 
and just miss it because they're they're not in your feed at that particular time or doesn't show up, they're gonna miss it. So it's um, you know, something that I want to in- incorporate, you know, and need to. It just takes time. But on the subject of email, yeah, we do that, and we hit our list very regularly, and we work very hard on building the list. Like we have a lot of programs out there that are specifically well campaigns that are out there that are specifically just for building the list and uh we hit the list quite a bit but it's not always everybody on the list like for instance if something new came out for only subscribers of one thing we're only going to send it to the subscribers of that one thing or um we're not going to send certain sales letters to people who have already bought something Uh, we try not to annoy people but whenever we have something cool that just came out like podcast or a blog or or something like that we let them know because they've got busy lives and also we also try to offer a little more than just hey this is up like on when we send the emails we try to elaborate on why it's cool and what it is that you're going to actually pick up from checking out this podcast and why it's important. Yeah. So, and I'd say we email three or four times a week, but I don't suggest doing that unless you have a really big list and can segment it accordingly. Yeah. I wouldn't, I would probably wouldn't do it ain't like more than once a week, even if that, like I would probably rather not do more than twice a week. Cause I think, when people feel like they're getting spammed, then they yeah. just start. Because I do the same thing. I have certain things that it's all the time. And some of them I check. And a lot of times I just ignore them altogether. We don't get spam complaints, but that's because we're very careful about it. And like I said, even though we're going three or four times a week, it's not three or four times a week to everybody. It's uh, three or four times a week as appropriate. But yes, I highly suggest that you and everybody listening start building an email list and interact with those people because your email list will, if you keep it warm, meaning warm as in you don't let it go cold and dead like a like a dead lead, it will always be a source of traffic and income for you. Yeah. Whereas we've all, those of us who have been in the game long enough know that these online platforms they change their rules, and for those of us who make money on them, sometimes it's disastrous. Like, back in the day, there was mp3.com who handed out a million dollars a month to independent artists. And there were artists who were making 30 or 40 grand a month just off of downloads on mp3.com, and it was called Payback for Playback. And then one day they stopped, and suddenly all these artists that were doing great suddenly we're not doing great anymore. And then there was MySpace, which you didn't make money off MySpace, but we personally know lots of bands whose careers were launched because of MySpace, and then that stopped being a thing. And uh, We still haven't found the next thing that does that. Facebook does its own thing. But even Facebook has changed their, their reach to where now you have to, you have to jump through rings of fire and yeah. well it's, it's it's never been a, a, a platform that has broken bands as far, yeah. you can use it but it's not like I said if you're spending 
X amount, like I said, that, the, going back to the $5,000 thing, if you're spending $5,000 to get 5,000 fans, say, or probably wouldn't even be that much, but <laughs> to get 5,000 to get 1,000 fans, are you really breaking the band? Or you're just, you know, you're just, that's just straight in, investment. <laughs> you yeah. Know? And they could change their rules on you and not let you do that anymore. Like, for instance, just say that there are lots of businesses who have figured out Facebook and who yeah. use it for ads and who use their groups and all that and who but what if they change their rules no no but i think it's great for products you know like i'll in my feed it'll be like oh here's this new thing that doodad that does something and you'll click on it cuz we like things that are helpful but i don't think music but i don't think music is that way music is not people don't view music in the same way as they like no, they look don't. at a new, at a new blender it's just um you can't for example like you'll see these um, I like these like Kickstarter campaigns for some new cool product, you know, and it'll, you know, it'll have made $8 million because it's a cool product. They don't have to, you know, but music, there's a, no way you're going to hear new, new music like, oh, that'll change my life in this functional way. It's always going to be entertainment in its, in its, in its own way. And we, we listen, we have to figure out a, how music matters in our day to day life. Cause I think, if we're still looking at it by the old metric of, oh, you sell it and it has this value. The value is what it is. You know, if people don't value your music, you can't, you're shaming them is not going to make it more valuable. <laughs> that's no, this whole thing of... No, of course. I, it, that, that's a big point of frustration. Like like anyone who uses the word, well, when people start stealing music, <laughs> I'm just like, what are you talking about? Do you like people really don't know what the word steal means? All right, if you're eating a hot dog and I come up to you and take your hot dog, guess what? You a hungry motherfucker, all right? (laughs) But if I take a picture of your hot dog and then press some buttons on my phone and then I 3D print a new hot dog, did I steal your hot dog? No, (laughs) you made your own exactly. But people don't get that, they're stealing you. No, they're copying music, that's what they're doing. They're copying music, intellectual property. Guess what? You know what? Also, they're copying ebooks, pornos, video games, movies. You're not the only one. So don't sit out there. And guess what? The film industry didn't collapse. Look how hard hit the porn industry got hurt. They got crushed. All right. People don't, you know, don't even realize. look at magazines. Remember magazines, physical magazines. That was a thing. Vaguely. <laughs> you know? But guess what? But guess what happened was it wasn't that people were downloading those magazines. You know, you could find e-versions of, you know, like stuff that people scanned. But that's not what killed them. What killed them was lifestyle changed. The world changed. The way people look at information changed, you know? And people forget. That's the one thing. People want to blame. People are stealing music. It's not. That's part of it. But what happened was... The world changed and music became something that happened in the background. It came, it became something you listen to while you're at the gym, while you're in your car. It be, you know, and so much more media showed up. And the way we, you know, our, our, like I said, using the real estate analogy, the real estate of our time, music went further in the background. Where, guess what? People can go on their phone and play on. You know, games or they can listen to podcasts. Yeah, there's just a million more pieces of entertainment that music has to compete for. 
But guess what? As we just saw, people are still willing to go to concerts, even more so. You know, so we care about music is still really important, but in a way, it's become this thing that is invisible. It's always there, right? Everywhere you go, if you're watching a movie, there's a song playing, but you kind of don't, it's a thing people don't value it because it's so pervasive. But guess what? If it wasn't there, people would notice and they would, they would want more of it. So we're still learning what, what place it has in the kind of marketplace of content and ideas and entertainment. And uh, you're only valuable as to what people are willing to pay for it. So stop sitting there and bitching about people stealing my music. <laughs> Yo, I, if, guess, if millions of people <laughs> were downloading your shit for free, you'd be huge. But guess what? The real problem is if no one is stealing your music, that means no one cares. I totally agree. Well, uh, one of the best ways to not not to sideswipe what you're saying, but one of the best ways I find, and I've read a lot about this, to sell stuff to your crowd, regardless of what's going on in the marketplace or online or whatnot, is through email. Yeah. Well, that's that's why I need to do it, man. That's and I yeah, but the thing is I think when it comes to the whole selling music, we just have to remember that we used to think of music as the C D or the tape or the record, but it's really just the sounds. It is. You know. And whatever format that comes in and, and how we look at that. And the truth is, if we don't, even if people aren't going to buy the music, if they're just streaming and they love your band or they love what you represent, they're going to want to support you in some way, whether that's, you know, it might not be this music you're selling them, but whether it's the concert ticket or a poster or a T-shirt or a guitar lesson or whatever. There's always going to be something if people are connected to your thing, your brand, your whatever, there's always going to be something to quote unquote, sell them to monetize it and take advantage of that market. You're building a market, you know, and it's, and I don't think of, like me, I never think about money. I only think about, um, spreading the word. I just want people to to, I just want people to, to check out the stuff I work on. And I know as long as I do that and I build an audience, the money will come. You know, I didn't get started. You know, I didn't, I didn't start out getting paid to write articles. I wrote articles because I wanted to write them and I got good enough at it that someone thought I was good enough to get paid for it. You know, I didn't start doing a podcast to get ad revenue, but I started doing it and people started asking if they could sponsor the show. You know what I'm saying? So I, I never think about that stuff. You know, I always think about get the audience first and and money will manifest itself in, in many different ways. But focus on making something great as the main thing, you know, I totally agree. And uh, with that, I think this is a good place to uh, to end this monster episode. <laughs> I think it's been awesome having you on. Thank you for talking to me for this long. No problem, man. I've had, I got a pee, got a headache. I'm out of beverages. You know, it's terrible. I'm oh. falling apart over here. But you know, all for, all for the art of the podcast, for the That's podcast right. life. <laughs> do me, do me a favor, just for everyone listening. Where, where do you want people to find you? And yeah, on Twitter and Instagram, it's at Doc Coyle, D O C C O Y L E. Uh, Facebook, just just my name. And like I said, my uh, I have a professional site, and then also my regular one. Which, like I said, I as we've discussed here, I'll be adding. Some some people. My website is www.coil.net. 
and I have all my podcasts. My podcast is called The X Man with Doc Coyle, and you can find that pretty That's much anywhere. E X E X Yes, E X Man. That's right. Um, no dash, just E X space man. Or you just put literally. You can go into your podcast app, put in my name, and it'll it'll show up. But yeah, I'm I'm pretty easy to find. There's I don't think there's any other famous Doc Coils in the world. So pretty much anywhere you you put that in, you're my favorite Doc Coil. The one Doc Coil I'm 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 hopefully in the top ten. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Out of all the Doc Coils, I know you're definitely my favorite one. And def- I hope to get you on the X Man because I think your story with Doth and the whole post career is super fascinating for. Um, people listen to my show as well so hopefully we can do that at some point i'd be happy to anytime you just let me know and uh dudes listening doc's articles and podcasts and everything he's done is just fascinating and you cover everything from you know talking about how pantera ruined modern production to bill Mayer and milo yiannopoulos going on there and the art of trolling which Sports, and everything in between movies yeah <laughs> i talk about everything weren't you just on an espn podcast yeah um for the minnesota timberwolves one of the one of the beat writers was a god forbid fan and i was literally just on twitter commenting on another espn writers thing and he's like god forbid what's up do my show i was like hell yeah there and, you go uh, yeah and I, I did an nba podcast or uh nba Art, uh, column for Metal Sucks for a long time, and I still write about that. So I'm I'm interested in a lot of things. I I, I don't like to do one thing. I like to stay have a have a finger in every every pot, as it were. Well, dude, thank you for coming on, and you can put your fingers in my pot anytime. Anytime, baby. All right, <laughs> take it easy. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to Fishman.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit NailTheMix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.